0: Welcome to the Talks on Law, California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking
1: legal topics. And now for the interview.
2: In a pandemic or any outbreak of contagion, communities living in close proximity face heightened risks. That issue is compounded when the individuals involved are not free to distance themselves or mitigate their behavior. I'm talking about prisons. With our next guest, we'll discuss pandemics and contagion in the jail and prison systems. We're joined remotely by Alexis Hoag, the practitioner in residence at Columbia Law School, who's recently written a piece on this topic. Professor, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Joel.
2: And maybe we can start with a little bit of background for the audience. I, I know that there have been a number of news stories about specific jails or prisons afflicted, but what's going on, uh, I guess, broadly?
1: So the United States uh, is really one of the top countries uh, in the world in terms of the n- number of people that we incarcerate. Um, and uh, we've got over 2, two million people uh, that are serving time in jails and prisons, both in the federal and the state system. Uh, Within that number, it's about 175 individuals that are at federal facilities. Um, inclusive of that is about 40,000 that are at immigration detention centers. And then you have children in juvenile facilities. In addition to people that are confined in prisons and jails, uh, we have an average of about 10 million people annually that are in and out of jail, almost on a daily basis. Um, and so our infrastructure is quite robust. And I think what COVID-19 has shown is that it's an extremely unstable infrastructure.
2: It's an interesting point that you raised that you say that the infrastructure is robust, but with so many individuals incarcerated, perhaps it's no surprise that they're held closely together. That creates a number of challenges when it comes to following guidelines set forth by CDC, for example.
1: Exactly. Folks are forcibly proximate. Um, and given what we know about COVID-19 and the CDC's recommendations, requirements, really, or um, is that people stay socially distant. Uh, that they wear masks, that they frequently wash their hands. And the problem in so many of these detention facilities, in prisons, in jails, is that the incarcerated people cannot frequently wash hands. Uh, there's uh, a real um, dearth of hand-washing materials, of soap. Um, I have clients that are incarcerated that you know they're, they're given a small bar of soap uh, for a period of time, and if it runs out, then they have to actually spend money in commissary to actually obtain more uh, sort of cleaning materials. And so things that we sort of take for granted on the outside are, are virtually unavailable to incarcerated people. And what I want to make clear is that, that folks that are incarcerated, you still retain your basic constitutional rights. Uh, your human rights, your human dignity, dignity, and what's uh, really clear about uh, folks that are incarcerated is that you know they have a right to be free of cruel and unusual punishment.
2: Maybe you can give an example of a case before the current uh, epidemic where inmates were able to successfully sue.
1: Yeah, before the pandemic. Um, we mentioned, you know, at the beginning of our, our talk, that, that the, the, the prison industrial complex is quite large. Uh, California is one state in particular where incarcerated people have successfully sued in federal court about conditions of confinement, um, and so there is legal precedent in California uh, addressing overcrowded prisons, these conditions of confinement. Uh, in other federal courts, incarcerated people have have uh, successfully sued about other sort of diseases, tuberculosis scabies. Um, and, and, and really, this, this reflects that, that prisons are petri dishes uh, for communicable diseases uh, even before COVID-19 uh, came on the landscape.
2: In your article, there was a reference to a prison that had high levels of, I believe it was staph infections or some type of superbug. Uh, what was going on in that case and, and what did the court find?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent example of uh, the threat and the harm of a communicable disease. Um, And that was litigated in federal court in Pennsylvania uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and something that we're able to take away and present to practitioners uh, and incarcerated people is that um, you can actually litigate your sort of harm uh, and risk of infection of any sort of disease like that based on the Eighth Amendment. Um, and so it's a two-pronged standard uh, with both a subjective measure and then an objective
2: measure. Yeah, why don't we take it, take it one at a time? What's the objective measure?
1: The, the first of the two measures would be uh, that, that a prison official is creating uh, this, uh, has a deliberate indifference. to uh, the incarcerated persons, uh, it, they've ex- exposed them to a substantial sort of risk or an unreasonable risk of harm. Um, and so that first part that there's deliberate indifference is what is subjective. And so the prison official actually has to know about the harm um, and deliberately ignore uh, what either the CDC protocol is um, or access to sort of medical care. Um, and it's that second prong, that, uh, the substantial risk, uh, which would be objective.
2: Deliberate risk seems like a relatively high standard. Do you have to show not only that they're not taking certain measures, but that it would be easy for them to do so or that they have the resources to do so?
1: Exactly. It is a quite high burden, but I think what we've seen in federal facilities, particularly the facility Oakdale in Louisiana, uh, there's another facility in Ohio, Ohio, uh, third in Connecticut, um, where it's quite clear what the prison officials should be doing. The CDC was quite clear about what the appropriate protocol should should be and that the prison was not adhering to that. Um, and so it wasn't so much just the wardens. It was um, the correctional officers, the vendors, um, counselors, nurses, uh, people that that. Um, work regularly in and out of uh, facilities and then, uh, you know, create a potential for a public health risk when they go home to their own families, when they, uh, they go to their own communities.
2: That's another important point uh, that you make, that it's not just inmates who are at risk, but also the staff that work at the facilities and the communities that, where they're located.
1: Yeah, Joel, that's exactly right, and that's why we should all be concerned. It's not just the two million people that are incarcerated, it's all of the people that come in and out of facilities uh, that are the essential workers. And they're the ones that are um, especially at risk of not just contracting the virus, but also spreading the virus once they're inside a facility.
2: So step one was deliberate indifference, and then the second test was objective, and that was substantial risk?
1: Uh, It could be a substantial risk or an unreasonable
2: risk. So in a pandemic situation, a substantial risk should be uh, rather easier to show than the deliberate indifference.
1: Exactly. Um, And so much about the structure of prisons uh, forcibly um, puts people proximate to each other. Um, I have clients incarcerated in state facilities in in Mississippi where um, it's a large sort of bunk bed uh, situation, sort of a large dormitory uh, where it's not even individual cells. And so the the beds are actually stacked on top of each other uh, with 10s, 20s, 30 30 or plus more uh, incarcerated people confined in a space together. Uh, eating meals together in close proximity, um, uh, utilizing um, bathroom facilities, again, in close proximity. And there's really no way to not be close to people.
2: And these inmates kind of run the, the spectrum in terms of age and many of whom would qualify as very high risk individuals for the current virus.
1: Yeah. And given the, the really punitive measures that our country uh, began to take in the 80s and 90s, the prison population exploded uh, numerical wise, and then also in terms of the length of sentences. And so in the United States, we have one of the, uh, the oldest prison populations. And this is exactly the population that's highest risk for contracting COVID-19. Uh, um, and then so many incarcerated people also have pre-existing um, conditions, uh, hypertension, diabetes, Again, these are all uh, substantial risk factors um, for contracting the virus. So this is an extremely vulnerable population of of individuals.
2: If the inmates are actually successful with their lawsuits, both tests are met, what obligations are then put on the prisons? It's not necessarily the case that they would be released.
1: Yeah, that's a great question uh, of remedy. You're, you're right, Joel. Not necessarily would somebody uh, obtain release as a remedy with a successful Eighth Amendment argument. Instead, it would be that the prison would have to take uh, the appropriate steps, the appropriate um, medical steps to uh, decrease that risk. And so it would be that, you know, the incarcerated individual would have access to uh, materials to frequently wash hands, would have access to a face mask, would have access to testing to determine whether or not they're positive for the virus. Um, and then also implementing measures that would enable people to, to be socially distant, well-confined. In terms of obtaining release, um, there, there has been a recommendation from the Attorney General, William Barr, to consider compassionate release of incarcerated individuals. And that's folks that are very close in time uh, to completing their sentence they're in a vulnerable population, uh, quite elderly. And then the remedy then could be sort of home con- monitored home confinement. But for the type of litigation we're talking about, it would be for the prison officials to actually take steps uh, to protect the spread of the virus and actually being able to follow and implement the CDC protocols and guidelines.
2: This hopefully will be the last pandemic we'll face as a nation, but that is not very likely. Professor, what do you see going forward? How will the system react to epidemics or pandemics in the future?
1: Yeah, Joel, I think what this this pandemic has really revealed, uh, not just in the criminal legal system, but in all other contexts, is that the infrastructure in the United States is is broken. In this country, we sentence so many people uh, to prison for such a long time. Um, and I, I think moving forward from COVID-19, local uh, jurisdictions, the federal government is going to think uh, sort of twice and more critically about um, the, the number, the sheer number of individuals uh, that we lock up in, in prison for as long as we do.
2: Alexis Hogue, thank you for your time and for your insight on this matter. The COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted our lives in a number of ways. In the process, it's brought to the surface important inequalities amongst populations. Today, we'll talk about how the gig economy and gig workers have been affected by the current pandemic. We're joined remotely by Professor Alatunde Johnson. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. Before we get started, maybe we could have kind of a a working definition. What does it mean to be a gig employee?
3: It usually refers to part-time um, self-employed work. Um, it's in that category. Um, but a lot of times the reason people use the gig, gig economy is that they connect it um, to work that's created as a result of new technology platforms. So we're talking about Uber drivers, Um, people who deliver um, in New York through Seamless or Uber Eats that operates in a lot of different jurisdictions. You schedule your own hours and um, it's not the traditional nine to five job. And a lot of um, employers in the sector have said that this kind of work doesn't make someone an employee, that they're in effect an independent contractor And there are tremendous implications for that in terms of your ability to get benefits.
2: So you make an important point, which is that the term employee has a legal weight to it. So it may mean that if it is a gig worker or a a contract worker, that that individual may not in normal circumstances be entitled to, say, health insurance or certain uh, benefits like paid sick leave. How does that work in the current crisis with so many individuals who are part of this gig economy? Are they on their own when it comes to unemployment insurance? Are they on their own when it comes to uh, paid sick leave?
3: Yeah, so it's a, it has a tremendous impact. Um, The status of whether or not someone's an independent contractor or an employee in the context of the current pandemic. Um, So if someone is furloughed or uh, laid off, loses their job um, as a result of the pandemic, um, what they would do is file for unemployment insurance. Um, But you're only eligible for it, um, typically, um, if you are Um, classified as an employee unless you work in one of those states um, that allows a broader range of categories to get unemployment insurance. So in a lot of states, you would have been out of luck in terms of filing for unemployment insurance. One of the important things about the congressional um, legislation that was adopted in response to to the COVID-19 crisis, um, known as the CARES Act, um, the Coronavirus Relief Act. It does a number of things and it expands unemployment insurance um, for a number of workers. So even if you run out of um, unemployment in your state. Um, it allows you to get it for a longer period of time. So that's important for a whole range of unemployed workers. But importantly, it includes um, gig workers um, and independent contractors in this. So that's one piece of um, the way in which the federal law responds, and that's an important new protection.
2: How about with relation to uh, paid sick leave? That's, that's not necessarily something that all Americans have at their fingertips, was that changed as well by congressional action or by state action? As you mentioned,
3: a lot of workers are not entitled to um, paid sick leave in their job. And this is not just gig workers or part-time workers, even there are a lot of full-time workers um, in particular industries, um, retail, restaurants, that don't get um, any amount of paid sick leave or certainly didn't get the 14 days of sick leave um, that one would often need to either recover from an illness such as COVID or to um, quarantine. So Congress extended uh, paid sick leave for a big category of workers um, and included gig workers and independent contractors in this. And most people who follow this area would say that's a very good development um, for workers. It's something that has never been done at the national level. Um, Some states also have responded by expanding paid sick leave and um, there had been movements even before this uh, crisis um, to require employers, all employers, to um, cover uh, paid sick leave for some amount of time. The proposals vary state by state. Um, And some states um, have had some sort of emergency paid sick leave um, provision. Uh, uh, requirement as a result of um, COVID-19. And New York State even um, moved to enact a system of permanent um, paid sick leave um, going forward. Um, So we see tremendous changes in the paid sick leave front that affect a broad category of workers.
2: An uninformed question for you, Professor. Paid sick leave sounds like an unambiguous win at the same time, we have to think about who's paying for the sick leave and at a time when businesses are struggling to stay afloat and many are in fact going under, is it the businesses themselves who are on the hook to pay for the sick leave or is the government stepping in?
3: Yeah. So these are structured in in different ways. Um, the idea with uh, paid sick leave as a result of the Care Act. Um, Care's Act is that um, the government is uh, providing that. And but for workers who are in businesses that are bigger, um, that are more able to absorb those costs. For example, if you work in a place that has over 500 employees, um, this is something that the employer should be able to cover. Now, at the federal level, they don't mandate it, but the idea is that um, big employers would be more able to handle the cost. Some of the programs are structured, so the very small businesses, um, in some cases, are exempt if it would pose a hardship um, to those businesses. Uh, Other states structure it, so they provide some support for smaller businesses. Um, And the idea motivating a lot of the um, actions um, with regard to the restaurant industry and the retail industry is that you're talking about bigger employers who should be able to um, afford this and and that it also makes good business sense. Um, As we see uh, here in the context of this pandemic, it's not good business to have sick employees, um, especially in businesses that interact with
2: the public. One of the things that you did in your piece was look at the patchwork approach. The government is stepping in and trying to help in as many ways as possible. Are there any particular areas that you identified where communities or groups are being left out of the recovery effort? Uh, Maybe you could share some and, and point to maybe the legal issue involved. There are big questions as to what is happening on the housing front.
3: Um, Congress did pass some important protections uh, protecting people against evictions um, or foreclosure if you're in federally financed housing, Um, so through one of the federal loan um, programs. It's not permanent, but just um, for a period of time. And some states have done that at the state level. There are a number of states um, that, that do not provide um, protection um, for people from eviction. A number of states have responded, um, but, as, uh, but as I indicated, um, one really has to look at um, your state and locality to figure out um, whether or not um, there are eviction protections. So when you talk about categories that are left out, um, the states are responding to the crisis in different ways. And so that means that there is an inequality, if you can say that, um, generated um, depending on where you live in terms of the kinds of protections that you get.
2: Pretty scary thought for an individual uh, during this troubling time to have that insecurity around their, their home. We talked about housing. What about utilities? Are states stepping in to provide additional protections when it comes to electricity uh, or even internet access?
3: One area of response has been dealing with gas and electric shutoffs. Um, So losing your electricity uh, during a pandemic would obviously affect a lot of things about um, perhaps health access, um, um, but also just maybe your ability to work remotely. Um, So some utility companies, electric companies have um, said that they're not going to shut off. And then in some states, you're seeing a a legal response, a governor. um, um, For example, in Michigan, the governor issued an executive order uh, limiting the ability of water um, utilities to shut off during the pandemic. So you've seen some action here. I think the issue of broadband access is a really interesting question. Um, One of the things that people have been Um, seeing is that in the context of education, where you have all of these uh, K through 12 students and college students uh, doing remote school um, through various platforms, that some don't have steady internet access. And there, there has been less law generated in the sense of they're not um, executive orders that are um, addressing the issue in the same way. But there have been um, state, local, and even some federal efforts um, to address this. And this has been done in a number of ways. I mean, one is encouraging um, companies to extend broadband access and um, even phone access. And so some companies have done that uh, voluntarily. Um, The FCC commissioner at the Federal level encourage that, and um, states and localities have encouraged that. Um, The other piece is creating uh, Wi-Fi hotspots um, in cities, so there are municipalities or towns that have created um, spots where students can go and do their homework. It doesn't uh, necessarily work everywhere, and it may not be. It certainly isn't an adequate replacement for home um, Wi-Fi access. So that is one where we're seeing a little bit of action, but what is revealed are are big disparities. And these are socioeconomic, but they're also regional because a lot of rural areas don't have good access to broadband.
2: Well, Professor Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, You've left us with plenty to think about.
3: Thank you very much for having me and for allowing me the opportunity to discuss these issues.
2: A break for those earning CLE credit in California. The code for this conversation is 200603. Again, that's 200603. And now back to the conversation. COVID-19 is a global pandemic but the impact is not felt uniformly. How is the COVID-19 virus affecting vulnerable children as well as state's efforts to keep them safe? We're joined remotely by Professor Jane Spinnock of Columbia Law School. Professor, welcome. Thank you. Professor, I know that you work closely, particularly with foster care systems. Maybe you could give an example of how a particular child or family in foster care is being impacted by the pandemic.
0: You may have a call to a state central registry about a family uh, that may be putting a child at risk and the system has to then investigate. Then you might have a determination that the child is at risk, but first determine whether there's ways to keep the child safely at home. Um, And that is the first responsibility of the state, to try to keep a child safely at home. If a child cannot be kept safely at home and has to go into foster care, then the state's second responsibility is to provide those services that would allow a child to go back home. So at every point along the way, the child's lo- and the family is likely to be impacted by uh, the pandemic and the limitations on every part of the system that the child and the family uh, will come in contact with.
2: Maybe we can take that a little bit step by step. We hear about incidents of domestic violence increasing uh, with quarantines. How are the reporting mechanisms operating or are they operating in the current climate?
0: Well, each state has its own reporting system, so I don't know exactly how it's working in every state, but most states have a system in which someone can call in. Uh, Some people are called mandated reporters, like doctors or teachers, and others are calling in because they have some concern about a family that they have witnessed something. The vast majority of calls that are made turn out to be unsubstantiated. There's not a reason Uh, to do any further investigation. And so right now what's happening is, uh, if people are calling into a hotline, certainly that part can go along as usual because that's a remote type of system anyway, but the investigation that has to happen afterwards is more limited
2: are these investigations once the call has been made are some of them being done you know remotely like our conversation is remote
0: well the best practice of course is to go in person but there may be good reason not to there may be some instance of sickness in the family or there may be a particular underlying condition that suggests that it would be less safe to do that. Certainly in cases of serious physical or sexual abuse allegations, I'm sure they're going in person, but most cases are not like that. Most cases uh, stem from poverty and uh, structural inequalities that mean families are at greater risk when they don't have health care, or they don't have child care, or they don't have sufficient income.
2: Sometimes these systems can be rather bureaucratic. It's not always intuitive what next steps are, uh, even for lawyers. For lay people, for the, the parents involved, for the foster parents involved, are there attorneys available to assist in this process?
0: So I think one of the important issues right now that is being discovered perhaps in parts of the country but well known in New York is the need for parents and children to have good representation. In recent years in New York we've developed a very robust family defense system Organizations like the Center for Family Representation and the Bronx Defenders and Brooklyn Defenders all have very good um, holistic responses to representing parents in these kinds of proceedings. The team is made up of lawyers and social workers and parent peer advocates who work together to help the family through this. And uh, we know in New York that that's had a real impact, both on keeping children safely at home who don't need to be in foster care and getting them home sooner. But in the rest of the country, that kind of system is unusual. And so I think many um, parents and children right now are facing what's going on in closing down the courts without ready access to um, lawyers who are going to assist them
2: the relationship between parent and child is an important one and even if a child is in foster care they may have visitation rights how is that working in the current uh, pandemic environment
0: Well, parents have rights to have contact to their children, and their children have rights to have contact with their families. And what we know is that time spent together between biological parents and their children is the strongest indicator that children will do well in foster care and also will be reunited with their families. So parenting time, family time is crucial for family reunification. So during this period of time, one of the things that the federal government has highlighted is the need for the states to ensure that visiting and parenting time continues as much as possible
2: Can you give some examples of how parents and their children are dealing with this creatively or practically given the current environment?
0: So it could be that um, children and, and parents could meet outside. It could be that we could check to make sure that Children and parents are not uh, symptomatic and so they could find a safe place for them to meet together.
2: And when possible, is electronic communication a tool that's available uh, in those custody arrangements?
0: There are ways in which to do remote um, visits, particularly for older children. Um, if it's difficult for them to meet in person, to have increased visits remotely so that the connections remain. And I think the serious uh, concern that so many people have is that the states are, are not doing this in the way that they can. Certainly when this began, there were blanket closures of of uh, time between parents and children. That's eased up some, but I think it's still very problematic, and and we need to figure out ways to keep parents and children connected during this time. This is also a very scary time for everybody, so it's even more important that children know that their parents are paying attention to them, that they want to see them, that they want to communicate with them, So that's crucial right now.
2: With many of the quarantine orders across the country, courts have been shutting down. What access to justice do families have or do parents have in the current pandemic?
0: I think they don't have enough access to justice. And that's a problem uh, for in many states and localities. And I think that... Part of it is that many of these cases were not considered essential or emergency cases when this began. From the Children's Bureau, there was a directive um, encouraging states not to have blanket closures and to think expansively about the importance of maintaining the court system for these families. I'm hoping that in the family courts, though, there will be a greater understanding that when this time goes by, um, it has a real impact on the ability of families to regroup, to reunify, and so every day that goes by, Places more and more barriers to a successful reunification.
2: You mentioned the importance of time. Have you seen courts relying on adjournments or or delays uh, in in the current situation?
0: Unfortunately, family courts are, are courts that have constant delays in the best of times, and that has uh, only increased during this period when so many things have been put on hold. And so there's a tremendous backlog that is going to need to be taken care of. Recently, there was a decision in the first department appellate division here in New York um, that was very critical of delays in family court particularly delays that were not based on strong legal or factual reasons, but were mostly based on administrative adjournments, lawyers having different calendars. And this decision uh, was based on a case that occurred before, Uh, the current pandemic, but um, I think that lawyers are already starting to use it to say, if this is true in normal times, then it needs to be true now, too. And so in making motions and in, in asking for hearings, the lawyers are saying, look, the the appellate courts have said that these kinds of delays cannot be allowed because time that, that children and families spend apart uh, cannot be recouped. And we need to act quickly in these cases so that um, families can get on with their lives. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.